Well, I, I'm going to pick up on a message that uh, was presented here last Sunday morning on the Church of Smyrna. It was called or is known as the Persecuted Church. There was tremendous suffering that they endured, and uh, they endured it literally for centuries. There's a lot you can read about in the, uh, regarding the history of the uh, Church of Smyrna in secular literature and also in the journals of the church itself that were discovered uh, later, later centuries and have been preserved. And I'll actually be quoting from one of those journals today. But I'm going to, uh, I just need to explain something about these slides. Uh, the, um, I have a computer that I use my, do my PowerPoint on. And uh, very accidentally, it was all my fault, um, some orange juice got spilt on it. And that's a couple years ago. And uh, so not all the keys work. So what I do is I put my PowerPoint on them, and then when I get here, we fix them. The problem is, unknown to us until this morning, uh, the license that we have on this computer for PowerPoint has expired, so the corrections could not be made. So if you put up the first slide, I'll show you what I mean. And uh, Okay, you'll see it. The L's are missing. And there's no semicolons between the numbers. Do we have it there? Yes. So it's Revelation, chapter 2. It's a new book in the Bible. It's very similar to Revelation, uh, except there's no semicolons between the, the numbers. So it's Revelation 2, which should be a semicolon, 8 to 11. And so this is the persecuted church. And the reason I'm picking up on this this morning is because the Bible teaches us that one of the, the key ingredients, or in fact, the very essence of the Christian life itself, is self-sacrifice, is giving ourselves to the Lord for his purposes. That we understand that the reason that we are here on this planet is not to serve ourselves but to serve the Lord and to serve others regardless of the cost. And Jesus taught us that that cost actually is our lives, that we, are, we lay down our lives for him. So I'll just read the text. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, angel means messenger, and so it was a... a, a a letter written or given, uh, not likely written, but comes from Jesus to the messenger, the pastor, or one of the leaders. These are the words of him who is the first and last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. And I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days, which is likely literally ten periods of history uh, that ended in about the year three, 350, 
And those 10 periods were 10 Roman emperors who were terribly cruel to the church and caused tens of thousands of them uh, to be martyred, mostly by being nailed to a cross, but by other means as well. Be faithful even to the point of death. And I will give you life as your victor's crown. And whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Now, when we read this in the West and in our time today, um, we don't relate a lot to being persecuted, literally, where we are physically threatened, our lives are physically threatened. There are certainly parts in the world today where that is the case. And uh, the, the United Nations is actually uh, uh, given um, uh, I guess a synopsis, if you will, of some of the countries in the world that persecute Christians even to the point where they are being threatened with genocide, being totally uh, martyred and uh, taken out of the, um, just taken out of the way. And Smyrna, which is a church in Turkey, or is a city that is now in Turkey, is still today suffering persecution, not from the Romans, but by radical Muslims who threatened to kill them and uh, put them to death. Now, um, I'm just going to give you just a little bit about um, the Smyrna Church, if I can find it here in my notes. Okay. Uh, the Smyrna Church was a major commercial city in Asia, and its main product was myrrh, and we talked about that last week. They also had a very large wine industry and uh, was famous throughout the world. It was called the glory of Asia because of its beauty. So it's a place you'd want to live. It just was really a wonderful place. It was filled with many, many temples to various gods. Zeus, Cybele, the goddess of nature, and all other kinds of Greek gods. It, it was the, the birthplace of the poet Homer. Some of you might have read some of his works in, in history classes or maybe just on your own. <clears throat> uh, it, was, it had a famous stadium that ho hosted some of the great gladiator co uh, competitions and uh, other kinds of games. So it was a, a sports center. And uh, today in Turkey, it's known as the city Izmir, and there's about uh, 300,000 people that live there. Now, in the city, there was a man by the name of Polycarp. And Polycarp was actually a disciple of John, and it was John, of course, who wrote the book of Revelation. And so Polycarp uh, actually became the pastor of the church. And he was uh, threatened, his life was threatened because of the persecution that came to the church. And I have uh, taken in my notes uh, some direct quotes by uh, one of the, um, a document called the Encyclical Epistle of the Church of Smyrna. 
and I'm going to read just a few excerpts from it. And it's in Old English, parts of it, so the words aren't quite up to date. But the most admirable Polycarp, when he first heard that he was sought for, in other words, the authorities were coming for him, was in no measure disturbed, but, res but resolved to continue in the city. However, in deference to the wish of many of his friends, he was persuaded to leave the city, and so he departed and went to a country house, not too far from the city. And there he stayed with a few friends, engaged and engaged in nothing else night and day than praying for all men and, to the, and for the churches throughout all the world. And according to his usual custom, and while he was praying, a vision presented itself to him that in three days before he was, and this happened three days before he was taken by the authorities, that he saw his pillow, uh, and it looked to him to, that it was being on fire. And upon this, turning to those that were with him, he said to them prophetically, I must be burnt alive. Now, as the story goes, as he was hiding in this house, somebody betrayed him. And the proconsul sent the authorities to him, and uh, they asked for Polycarp. And instead of hiding, he came down from his loft where he was praying. He came down to where they were and greeted them and welcomed them into the home and said, I'm the man you're looking for. And he ordered it right away that food be set before these soldiers and that they be given every hospitable welcome that they could. And they were quite taken back by this. And they were awed by the countenance of this man, who by this time was an elderly man. And he, was, he, he just had such a radiance about him. And they started to think to themselves, uh, how is it that we've been sent to arrest him? He's an old person. He's, he's obviously a man of, uh, of just great character. And uh, so, but that's what they were there to do. So Polycarp said, would you give me, before you take me, one hour to be alone with the Lord to pray before you, you take me? And they granted him this. And for the next two hours, he was in his loft and just pouring out his heart to the Lord, not to rescue him, not to save, to save him from the pyre where he was going to be uh, uh, burnt, but to uh, uh, win these men and the city and the Romans and others to Jesus for them to come to a revelation of who Christ was. That was his passion. And so as they took him away, one of the lead soldiers said to him, Polycarp, all you have to do is just renounce Jesus and say, Caesar is Lord. And he said, I cannot do that because Jesus is Lord. And, he, and that confession is what caused so many Christians to be tortured and most often martyred. So when he's brought into the stadium and uh, again they plead with him 
And the proconsul himself said to him, if you renounce Jesus and say, Caesar is Lord, you'll be spared from the fire. And he responded and said, well, I might be spared from the fire momentarily, but if I renounce Jesus, I will be in the fires of hell eternally. And so will you. And so this angered them, and they, they, it shouldn't have been this way. They were threatening him with fire, and now he's threatening them with fire. But not fire that he was going to light. It was the fire of the judgment of God. Now the church in those days were very convinced about judgment. Very convinced about the necessity that Jesus alone is Lord and we worship no other. That's what caused the church to be as strong as it was. And all around the church you'll see these signs saying there's a shift coming. And we're starting something very special in just a, well, it's, on, it's not far away. It's the 20th of September with two very special men that will be here. And then following that, in, in uh, four days, on a Thursday night, there will be two other men that will be here. But we've just advertised the names of the two because we're doing a weekend conference, and the other two will just be here for one night. What is the shift? What, what is it that is necessary for us to become a church that is elevated into the full purposes and callings of God as we should embrace them and experience them and practice them. And without any doubt in my mind, I'm convinced that it is the very essence of what we read about in the book of Revelation about the Smyrna church where people did not love their lives even to the death but will lay down everything for Christ. And uh, the story goes that they brought him into the, uh, to the big stadium, and they, they were going to nail him whenever they would burn somebody. They would nail the person to the, to the woods so they couldn't get away. And Polycarp said, you don't have to do that. I won't escape. I'm ready to be offered as a sacrifice, as a witness to my devotion to Jesus. And so they put him on that platform where they were going to light the fire and burn him. And as I read this, I thought to myself, when those flames started to burn my flesh, would I just lay there? I, I think I'd, I don't know. We know we, no, none of us know the grace that the Lord will give us when we go through a trial until we go through that trial. But we can speculate as to what it might be like for us. Would we just would we say, please stop, stop, Caesar is Lord, or whatever, anything but this. Uh, and uh, and yet he, he that's where he went. And he said, I won't try to escape. Now, the story goes on in the Chronicles of, uh, that I just mentioned about the church of Smyrna that when the fire came 
it formed an ark around him, but didn't burn him. And everybody who saw it were absolutely astounded. And the history of the martyrdom of Polycarp was, was told through, throughout all of the then-known world and is still remembered today. It's sort of like the three Hebrew children, that when they were thrown into the fire, they weren't consumed. Uh, and Nebuchadnezzar said, didn't we throw three in the fire, in the furnace? Who's the fourth man? And his countenance is like the Son of God. How did Nebuchadnezzar know who, what the Son of God looked like? But powerful revelation of God, of the preservation of life and of purpose that God will absolutely perform. So when Polycarp wasn't touched by the flames, they ordered that a spear go through him, and he was speared to death. Well, uh, the whole idea of suffering, of persecution, of paying a price, if you will, not that we pay for our salvation. Of course, we know that salvation is a free gift of God. But when we come into this troubled world where there is so much opposition to Christ and his purposes and so much opposition to the true church's message, there are things that we need to be able to uh, concern ourselves about. John chapter 16, verse 1 to 3. At this time, this is, this is Jesus. I have told you, all this I have told you, he said, so that you will not fall away. There's always the threat of us losing our faith. And he said, they will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anybody who kills you will, will think that they are offering a sacrifice to God. And, and that time was coming, wasn't very far away. It was just, just a few short decades. And they will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. So Jesus said, there's going to come a time when there's going to be a choice of falling away and becoming complacent. And you don't have to renounce Jesus to do that. You just have to be a lukewarm Christian and really not committed to the full purposes of God. So uh, there's coming a time whenever people who mock you, who curse you, who laugh at you, who even put you to death in so many parts of the world that, where that still happens, they will be thinking that they are the ones that do God's service. In fact, in the history of the, in the life of Polycarp, the, the Romans said that people who do not believe that Caesar is Lord are atheists. So the Christians were called atheists, not because they didn't believe in God, but because they didn't believe in the deity of Caesar. 2 Timothy 3, verse 12. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Everyone. So 
he spans the, the whole span of history and brings it right to us today. If you're going to serve Jesus fully and truly, there is going to be opposition against you. There will be, and any one of you could give me the story in your own life of what that might be, that what that is like. First Peter 5, verse 10, And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. So, um, Suffering in this world is only for a little while. And the reason is that comparison to eternity, if you lived 120 years on this earth, it would only be a little while. And so there's, a, there's, a, there's coming a day when things will be different. And we can sit back and just long for that day and say, oh, well, I, I, I just... I'm just waiting for the time when Jesus will take me out of this world. I'll fly away and get away from here, and I'm just, I'm just so longing for that. Well, if that's what you feel, that's okay. Because it will be glorious to be in eternity with Christ. But you're missing the point if that's all you think, because there's a purpose for God putting you here, and that is for you to lay down your life for the cause of Christ. And, uh, and in First Peter chapter 5, verses 1 to 3, to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory. That will never fade away. Uh, it's, a, it's a message to church leaders. There's so many different things that, uh, well, when you're in a position of leadership, there, there's, you can leverage that leadership in ways that are ungodly. One of the things he mentions here is gain, money. And we look at church leaders today who live in opulence and great wealth, uh, who own tremendous tracts of real estate. And, and, and is that right or is it wrong? Well, God's not against prosperity, but what God calls us to do is to lay down everything for him. And the only thing that we should keep are those things that are necessary for, the, for daily living. The whole gift of giving is to take our surplus, what we don't absolutely need for sustenance, for life, for the basic needs of, of food and shelter, uh, those kind of basic things. 
But instead of that, we tend to, as soon as we can afford a bigger house, we buy one. Well, what would have happened if you put that money into serving the kingdom of God? And so we, we, wealth is not the issue. It's what we do with it. And Paul, or Peter warns the church, he said, be careful of how you can be easily tempted to lord it over the church, to use your position as a position of advantage. So instead of giving your taking, instead of demanding or, or, or pouring out yourself as a servant, you're demanding that people serve you. And so those are the things that the Scripture teaches us, no matter what position we may hold. And, and these are strong warnings that the Bible gives. Now, the Scripture says, there lays up, 2 Timothy 4, verse 8, there is a, there, there, now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all those who have had a longing for his appearance. So there's two perspectives to keep in mind. It's this earthly sojourn, this earthly trek, and laying down our lives whenever we have privilege we don't use it for personal advantage, but we shift it over to the purposes of God in our lives. Now, um, in First uh, Thessalonians two, two chapter nine, uh, nine, verses nineteen to twenty, for what is our hope, our joy, or the crown? And notice the use of the word crown, the crown of righteousness in the previous passage, the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord when Jesus comes. Is it not you? Indeed, for you are our glory and joy. So there is a, there is a crown. It's, it's a reward. It, it doesn't have to be anything physical or some literal thing that's put on our head, but the satisfaction of knowing, the absolute joy of knowing that we've won other people to the Lord. So the crown of righteousness, the crown, the crown of glory that he gives us. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 24 to 25, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. And everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training, they do it to get a crown that will not last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. So as Paul is talking about this whole thing about self-sacrifice, and he uses all these pictures or metaphors of like a, a race, a runner running a race and preparing himself for a crown that will fade away eventually someday. But as Christians, we also must prepare ourselves, equip ourselves, train ourselves for a crown that is never going to fade away. Um, I'm going to take you uh, back to um, slide four. 
These are the words of him who is the first of last and last, who died and came to life again. This is the eighth verse, the first verse of that passage in Revelation that we read. Why does he reveal himself as the first and the last? Well, for one thing, he was before the problem you're going through, and he'll be there after the problem has ended. He's there before the trial or persecution that you're enduring. He'll be there after the persecution is over. And so he's the first and the last. Anything that we endure in between is transitory. It won't last. And then he says that it is he who died and came to life again. What is it that we're called to in a statement like that? Well, Jesus was called to the cross. In order to save the world, he was called to die for the world, to die on our behalf. What are we called to? We're called to the cross. When it comes to looking at life's trials or life's blessings, he calls us to the cross. This is a message from him who died and came to life again. Because the cross will lead to glory. It will lead to the crown of righteousness, the soul winner's crown. It's the victor's crown, the crown that is obtained from running a race honorably. And as Paul said, a crown of righteousness for those who live their lives honorably and holy before the Lord. Verse 10, do not be afraid of what you will suffer. Fear can be a great killer. It can keep us from the full purposes of God in our lives. Um, You can be afraid of uh, almost anything. And uh, you don't need to be. You You need not be afraid because the Lord knows his perfect plan for your future. The Lord knows the days that lie before you and his perfect plan. You might go through times and you say, this is perfect. Well, we see it from a very, very small, narrow window. He sees it from the greater picture. We do not need... uh, to be afraid because we know that the Lord will put a limitation on what the devil can do to us. Uh, there's no temptation that's taken you, the Bible says, but such as is common to man. And God will, with every temptation, make a way of escape that you can bear it. He didn't say he's going to take you around it. He's going to take you through it. We don't need to be afraid because in every conflict, God's people have the last word. And we don't need to be afraid because our Lord has overcome death. He conquered it. And so we have what is referred to in in this passage, the crown of life that the Lord will give to us. Um, I'm just not sure where we are with the slides. Is it slide, oh, slide five? Is that the next one? I got mixed up in the order of the slides and 
apologize for that. It's verse 9. I know your afflictions and your poverty. Now, you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. And last week we talked about that. All of the lies, all of the things that were said against Polycarp, against the Christians of those days, against every person who chose to serve Jesus, every one of the 12 apostles except John died a martyr's death. I do not be afraid. He said, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. Where are you this morning in all this? Where, where are we as a church? I, I, I get burdened about our church. I, I look at what it is, and I'm thankful for what it is and for every one of you. But then I see past, and I see what it could be. A picture of what it would be like if every person in the church laid down their lives for the cause of Christ, laid down their lives for the kingdom of God and for each other, for finding our place in the body of Christ and serving each other's needs. I start to think and imagine what that might be like. What would it be like to pastor a perfect church? Well, if it wasn't a perfect if it was a perfect church, you certainly wouldn't need me. So I don't like that idea. Uh, <laughs> because in fact, every shepherd is an under shepherd of the chief shepherd. And so you don't have a perfect shepherd in me, but you certainly do in he who is the chief shepherd. And perfect church, well, the whole idea of perfection in the Bible has to do with a complete church, not necessarily a sinless church filled with perfect people. In fact, it doesn't mean that. It does mean that God equips us and gives us the necessary things for life and for godliness and for maturity and for being the people that he's called us to be in this world. To love the gospel and spreading the, the word of Jesus around the world. For that to be more important than anything else. To love the body of Christ. To love serving each other and caring for each other's needs. For living in a family life that is honorable and is an example to the world of how a husband and a wife should treat each other. How a family life with children and parents and grandparents and, and, and just the whole extended family, how they relate to each other. How we pray for those in our families that are not Christians, that have given to their lives, haven't given their lives to Christ, or have backslidden from the place they once had in Christ. The kind of perfection that we're talking about isn't because we are perfect, as I said, but because we commit ourselves to the principles of growing, of maturing, and of becoming all God calls us to be in every sphere. You can't live a life like that and not be concerned about the poor or not be concerned about missions or not be concerned about your neighbor 
the person who lives beside you. Uh, Are you ready for a shift? I know I am. Am I happy with myself as I am? No. I'm happy for the things God has given me, but I know there's more. I I know that in my latter years, I should not be content with what I have or what I've had. Just to lay it down and wait until my time to go to heaven arrives, but... Every step of the way, we're called to grow, to mature, to become, to overcome, to be able to serve, to find new ways of serving. If you're an older person, you say, well, I can't, you know, I can't run around in camp with the kids anymore. Well, neither can I. I show up there, but I certainly don't run anymore. Uh, I can't do all those things. I can't work. I'm I'm not as strong. And the Lord knows that. But what does... What has he put in your hand? What do you have that you can give? And it's a lot more than you might think. Praying, serving, reaching out to one of the children or one of the teens and, and showing how much you, uh, showing them genuine love and care. Bringing people to the kingdom of God through your witness. You don't have to be young to do any of those things. These are things we can all do, and we can all do now. Well, Diane, would you come and... Are you going to do the song, The Victor's Crown? Is that what you're going to do? Yeah, let's do that. Let's stand. This is a beautiful song that goes so well with this passage. Where Jesus wears the victor's crown because he's overcome sin, death, the devil. And he gives to us that crown. He gives it to us to share so that you can have the victor's crown. It's really quite an amazing thing because we look at what Jesus did when he died. He rose again. He ascended. We see him in his heavenly session as our high priest and and we just are amazed. But... He, said, he brings it all back to us and says, you can too. You can die to sin, to self, to everything that keeps you from fulfilling the purposes that I've created you for. And you can rise in a life that you never thought you could have. You can overcome every temptation and trial because I have given you my spirit. 
he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. I don't know about you, but I think there's a lot more overcoming for me to do than what I've done. Are you with me? If you are, lift your hands and just keep them there in praise to the Lord, in thanksgiving to Him, and in asking for His presence and blessings to be upon us.